I'm going to tell you guys a story of what actually happened and then what I think really happened. So inside my community, I have a community on my website where we go over lipid panels and, uh, you know, we get really in-depth and really personalized with my advice to um, the people that we work with and the people that are with me. So this is what a lipidologist or a cardiologist would say to a patient with these numbers. I'm going to put the numbers up here or maybe on the other side and we'll go through them one by one. Now I changed the name because I don't think he wants me to know, but one of my uh, community members, let's just call him Mark, who is actually a physician, said, hey, Dr. Allo, here's my wife's lipid numbers. Here's what I think. Here's what our family doctor told us. Um, but I really want your opinion as a second opinion. So I'm going to read them off for you and then we'll go from there. So first of all, he says um, that these are obviously a snapshot in time. Yes, a lipid panel in most of these labs are a snapshot in time, but they're incredibly accurate. That does not mean that they're inaccurate. Um, their family doctor tried to write it off saying, well, it's just a snapshot in time. Don't worry too much about it. But it is a problem. Um, this is not just a snapshot in time. This is pretty accurate. So first things first, total cholesterol was 258 and LDL was 178. So he tells um, now, now he actually is not a family person, not a cardiologist, not anything. He, he works in a surgical field, so he doesn't know a whole lot about this, but he knows just enough to be dangerous. And Mark, I know you told me it's okay to share this. I'm not saying this um, to hurt you or be condescending or be mean in any way, but obviously you're not a uh, primary care, you're not internal medicine, you're not a family doctor, you're not a cardiologist, and you're certainly not a lipidologist, but here's how a cardiologist would interpret your lab values or your wife's lab values. Um, so total cholesterol of 265 or 258, whatever it was, is super high. Um, that's way up here. Now you may say, well, that doesn't matter because you know you gotta break it down into LDL and HDL and triglycerides and all that, true, but total cholesterol in the beginning of time when when that was all we had, total cholesterol tracked directly with mortality, um, uh, myocardial infarctions, non-fatal non MIs, um, strokes, heart attacks, all that stuff tracked directly with cholesterol. Now we know that LDL is even better and we'll get a little bit into ApoB, but we'll, we'll dive pretty deep because I want to show you guys the kind of discussions that we're having uh, in my community. So that you guys kind of know like how personalized we can get and how deep, deep into the woods we can get. The forest is not as important as the trees. And then every single leaf and every single you know branch is super, super important. Um, so the the LDL, the, the primary doctor started saying, well, you know, the LDL number is super high. It's 178, but it's not a big deal because, you know, we don't know how many particles there are or how many, how big they are, how fluffy they are how small they are. And, and this doctor in the surgical field was kind of agreeing, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're the fluffier, the bigger, the better, the smaller, the not so better, you know, whatever, just going on and on. Information from about 20 years ago. No one in actual real cardiology thinks this right now. All LDL particles are atherogenic, or at least we could say they are all potentially, potentially atherogenic. Um, at some points in their life cycle, LDLs do bring cholesterol out of your arteries. Um, especially if they take it from an HDL, but that's like getting a little bit too deep. But regardless, um, all LDLs of all size, and I've done multiple videos on this now on all my social media platforms, you can follow me everywhere. All LDL of any size, of any oxidation level, of fluffiness or not fluffiness, are all atherogenic or let's say potentially atherogenic. So trying to write it off as an LDL of 178 is not a big deal, is a huge deal. Um, this person really has no idea what they're talking about. If you're talking to your doctor and they're like, well, let's get a size of your LDLs and let's do this and let's do that. 
please run. That person is not up to date. They don't know what they're talking about. That was information from maybe 15 or 20 years ago. We know so much more about LDL now. All LDL is atherogenic. Just keep that in mind. If you take anything away from this, remember all LDL is atherogenic, right? That's the key. Um, when you track LDL, regardless of anything else, and I just mean LDL cholesterol, not LDL particle, not LDL anything, just straight up LDL cholesterol tracks directly with atherosclerosis, with cardiovascular mortality, MIs, non-fatal MIs, all of that direct line to cardiovascular mortality, cardiovascular death, cardiovascular pretty much everything, heart attack, strokes, whatever you want to call it. So LDL in and of itself, regardless of size, regardless of anything else, is absolutely uh, atherogenic and dangerous. And with an LDL being 178, I asked him, you know, especially with regard to the rest of their, their profiles, like, is your wife happen to be on a ketogenic carnivore style diet? And he said, yes, because, you know, I can tell I've been doing this for a very long time. I look at people's lipid panels all day, every day. The lipid panel matched that of somebody who's very keto-y, lots of saturated fat, lots of whatever. So obviously my advice to him and her was to cut that out because... Uh, saturated fat is also a direct line to cardiovascular mortality. Um, there's no joke about it. And the biggest thing that I want people to know is that lipids is the most modifiable risk factor. There are nine risk factors that are associated with first MI, first myocardial infarction, first heart attack. Of those nine, lipids is up here at about 50% of, uh, of, of uh, effect. And then they kind of go down all the way to like diabetes being like way down here. But the most important thing is lipids and we can modify lipids and we can drive them down super super low now so just keep that in mind as we kind of go through the rest of this the next one was um hdl um the high density lipoprotein hers or, or his or was 67 i don't know if he was just saying it was his wife's um but you know we did talk about it in depth but 67 he told her well because this is so high for women we wanted above 50 and this is super cardio protective um, first of all, we no longer believe that. That's also from about 15 or 20 years ago. We used to think that HDLs being high is cardioprotective. We now know that that is not the case. We have invented medications that raise HDL, and it turns out that that is not cardioprotective. And in fact, we've looked at people who genetically have higher HDLs, and those HDLs are not protective um, they are actually dysfunctional. If your LDL is like 98, 100, 120, when I have seen some that high, um, that high, um, they're not being delipidated. That was a tough word to say, but we aren't able to extract the cholesterol out of them is what it is. We can't get the cholesterol out. We can't give it back to the LDL. We can't get it back to the liver and eliminate it. They have very high cholesterol levels and are unable to eliminate their cholesterol. So they're dysfunctional. We do not think that they are actually uh, protective. There are no targets in the current guidelines, and it's been that way for a very long time. There are no current targets to actually treat HDL up or down. Um, so we know that it actually, so, so there's no targets for it. So a lot of people say, well, you know, we want to get it up. We want to get it down. No, there are absolutely no targets in cardiology. According to the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, there are no targets for HDL. Whatever your HDL is, is your HDL. We don't really care about it anymore. Now, sure, with some nuance at extremes of HDL, there may be a concern. Like I said, very, very high HDL and it's probably dysfunctional. Very, very low HDL, 
may also kind of be a problem like is there something going on but like again like like i said we don't really care that much about it um the next number that he talked about was her triglycerides and those were actually good they were like 58 or 50 or something like that um that's not bad um triglycerides below 60 is what we usually want and below 50 is is even better so clearly just looking at this it looks like somebody who's on a ketogenic diet now a lot of people look at this and say, well, she must be very metabolically healthy. The word metabolically healthy is just just jargon or just BS, just somebody trying to sell you something. There is no metabolically healthy. As we'll see later, um, they, they usually say that to mean like you're lean and you're in, not insulin resistant and that means you're metabolically healthy. That's not actually true. You can have these numbers and still be insulin resistant, which we'll see. Um, so that is not actually true. Now, sure, um, the, the, the cutoff kind of for triglycerides in the literature or like if you look at lab values, it says like over 150, 160 is abnormal um, or at least like over 130 depending on the lab you go to and what they say. But normally triglycerides below 70 is where you want to be and below 60 is obviously better. When you're in the 80, 90 range, the closer you are to 100, the more likely you are to actually be insulin resistant. Um, triglycerides that are pretty elevated, and I'm talking like well over 130, 150, 200, and, and even more, usually means you're insulin resistant, you didn't fast long enough, you ate a big, huge fatty meal, um, you have alcoholism, or you drink alcohol, you have chronic kidney disease, your diabetes is not well controlled. The two number one causes are usually diabetes not being well controlled, and or your pre-diabetic and just don't know it yet, you're insulin resistant and just don't know it yet. Um, usually something like metformin makes a huge difference and will bring those down. Now, if somebody's already uh, diabetic and on medications, make sure they get that um, treated with their endocrinologist. If you're super lean but diabetic, you don't have a lot of options in terms of losing weight. Now, if you're obviously very obese and overweight, you can lose weight. If you're not obese and overweight and you're very lean, your options are basically only medications. The best one and this has the most cardioprotective, the most data is actually metformin. And it does a fantastic job of bringing those triglycerides down. We do not treat triglycerides in a way that is just cosmetic. We don't just put people on fish oil or, or tricor or trilipics or whatever, phenofibrate to bring down their triglycerides and make it look pretty. We need outcomes data. Metformin has tons of outcomes data. It will improve insulin resistance and prevent you from becoming diabetic many, many years and decades uh, into the future, even if you're just on it for a brief, short period of time. The next thing that we noticed uh, on her labs is her fasting glucose was 95. And he's like, yeah, you know, anything under 100 is normal. No. That is not true. Obviously, he's not a cardiologist or a lipidologist or somebody who knows a lot about this or an endocrinologist, for example. 95 is like two, three, four, five points away from being abnormal. A person who is fasting overnight and gets a fasting glucose done, their fasting glucose is like 70. And I and I pointed that out to him. I said, listen, man, uh, 99 or 95, whatever it was, is pretty high. That's like uh, you're insulin resistant. Your wife is definitely insulin resistant. Do you happen to have an A1C? And he's like, yeah, her A1C is 5.5. That's pretty insulin resistant. 5.7 and higher is pre-diabetic. 6.5 and higher is diabetic. These are a little bit arbitrary, and they probably should lower those numbers so that we can capture more people in pre-diabetes so they don't become, so they don't stay pre-diabetic for a longer period of time because diabetes is usually the number one cause of blindness, number cause of kidney destruction, kidney disease, renal failure, whatever in the world, amputations, whatever. 
we don't want to let people hang around pre-diabetic for too long before we finally say, yes, you're diabetic. So 99 or 95, whatever that was on the fasting is way up here. And then the A1C, which is an average of your last two to three weeks, sometimes even months, um, is also very, very high. So this person clearly is insulin resistant. He says that his wife is super lean and metabolically healthy. Clearly not so much. You you can be super lean and still diabetic. That has nothing to do with it. It's genetic. It's one thing people don't want to believe or a lot of these people that are super lean and healthy and metabolically healthy, they don't want to believe that they have diabetes because we're doing everything right. They think diabetes is a failure of lifestyle. It is not. I have 500-pound patients that are not diabetic. You didn't fail lifestyle. You failed genetics. You have genetics, and your genetics are such that even though you're lean and healthy and eating right and eating clean, whatever that means, even though you're doing everything fine, you are still quite insulin resistant. We have very thin 20-year-olds, 18-year-olds, teenagers that are super thin, super athletic, beasts at athletics and sports who are metabolically healthier than anybody, but their genes are such that they have very bad type 2 uh, diabetes. So those two uh, don't go together. So don't blame yourself for being diabetic. I've done videos on this on almost every social media platform. We know the genetics of type 2 diabetes. About 9 to 11% of the population is has type 2 diabetes your lifestyle can make it better or worse. But if you're super thin and already doing all the lifestyle stuff, you just need uh, medications. The next thing he posts later after that was, well, she has a continuous glucose monitor and when she wakes up, it's always like 70. That, those are not accurate. The continuous glucose monitors, like the skin patch you wear and it tells you what your glucose actually is all the time continuously, it's not accurate. They're very good at picking up very low glucoses, like 65, 60 or below or 150 and above. They're like a good alert or alarm for diabetics to not go too hypoglycemic or too hyperglycemic. For people in the normal range, it's not accurate. Between 70 and 90, they're not accurate. So you really should go by the fasting glucose and the A1C. Incredibly accurate, incredibly reliable, incredibly validated. If we, if we did the same test over and over and over again, you'd get pretty much the same uh, number. So it's incredibly accurate and incredibly reliable that's what you should go by and then he says well her fasting insulin was below six and that's normal that has no bearing on anything that we just said that is just like a cosmetic measure i would completely leave that alone you can discuss that with an endocrinologist if you want to which i highly recommended for him to see go see an endocrinologist because your numbers all point to the fact that you actually have insulin resistance well not him but his wife you have actual resistance insulin resistance and you need to see an endocrinologist to make sure this doesn't progress um the next thing he said, well, most doctors, when they see a cholesterol of over 200, right away, they want to put you on statins. No, we don't. It really depends on the person. I'm a cardiologist. If you come to see me, you've already had a heart attack or stroke or, or what have you, you absolutely have to be on a statin. It's, it's uh, malpractice to not put you on a statin because you've already had a, a heart attack or a stroke. And there is like a 92% reduction in repeat heart attacks and strokes if we put you on five medications, one of them being a statin. And the science has shown that the lower we lower your LDL, the longer you live, regardless if it's primary prevention. And that's another thing he tried to say. Well, primary prevention means preventing that first heart attack or stroke. And secondary prevention is you already had one. We're trying to prevent that. All of the studies on primary prevention and secondary prevention have all shown a significant decrease in mortality, cardiovascular events. We call them MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events. All of those go down 
the lower your LDL is, whether we press it down with a statin or PCSK9 inhibitor, Zetia, whatever it is, almost any of those things that lower your LDL, lower mortality, lower event rates, lower death rates, whatever it is. So we had to correct that part of his understanding as well. Um, the other thing that he said that was absolutely incorrect is that insulin causes or statins cause insulin resistance and that they're mitochondrial toxins. Absolutely not true. They're not mitochondrial toxins and they do not cause insulin resistance. They have found in some studies that people who already had insulin resistance, like his wife, for example, had a slight uptick in their A1C from 5.8 to 5.9. That was the Jupiter trial. You're welcome to go look it up. But lots of huge trials have been done on this. They don't magically change your genes and give you type 2 diabetes. But if you already have it, it may get a little bit worse. But also, if you're on a statin, you live longer. And when you live longer, most diseases like diabetes do get worse over time the longer you live, especially because most people gain weight the longer they live, don't follow their diet the longer they live. So that was another point that I had to make to him. Um, the other thing that was a mistake is that he said tri that triglycerides are low because she doesn't eat a lot of sugar or processed sugar junk food. That is not entirely true. They are usually from a fatty meal. So that one is easy to, to rule out. And then he started talking about the triglyceride to HDL ratio. You know, if the triglyceride to HDL ratio is above one or one and a half or four or whatever, like he just started, they, he started going on and on about this. Like, listen, my man, <clears throat> that's not true. Triglycerides being high or low is one thing. HDL is another thing that we don't care about. So you can't use that as a denominator. If you use HDL in the denominator and it's something we don't even track or follow or care about, you that, that ratio is absolutely useless. Why are we even talking about a ratio that is not even worth talking about, especially since the HDL is in the denominator? We can talk about triglycerides separately, ignore HDL unless they're like at extremes of HDL, but ignore HDL altogether. No one really cares about it. But we can talk just about triglycerides, and that tells us your metabolic health, sure. But there are other factors that also tell us that, which I've gone over. Um, the other thing he said, well, statins don't do anything to bring down your triglycerides, and we don't have a medicine to treat it. That's why doctors don't want to bring down your triglycerides. This whole conspiracy theory that um, doctors are only interested in bringing down your LDL, making LDL the bad guy because we can bring it down. No, we can bring down triglycerides super easy come come to me i will bring down your triglycerides to whatever number you want statins do bring down your triglycerides they actually bring up your hdl especially crestor and lipitor bring up your hdl a little and we can bring down your triglycerides many many other ways the most important thing would be treating diabetes and pre-diabetes first and then if, if you have hypertriglyceridemia which is a genetic very very high triglycerides we have a whole host of other things um, that we can do to bring that down which we won't go into because it's a topic for another day and it's completely unrelated He says the other reason that doctors want to want to put you on statins is because then you can continue to eat garbage. That's not true. No doctor, at least not in cardiology, says, hey, we're just going to put you on Lipitor, go eat cheeseburgers all day and, and ribeyes all day. No, we don't do that. No one says that. You have to eat right, stay as healthy as humanly possible with a little bit of help of the statin to bring your numbers down, or not even statins anymore. There's so many other medications, but with a little help of medicine to prevent further atherosclerosis. Um, the other thing that was kind of funny is he was asking me about ALT and what it stands for, what it doesn't stand for. He didn't really know what it is and he said the wrong words and he had looked it up following some weird guru chiropractor on the internet, which is very unintelligent. I'm sorry, my friend, but that's not smart. Following a random 
person online who tells you what ALT or AST should be is not as smart as following a GI doctor. Go talk to a GI doctor who knows exactly what these are. Um, a lot of things can raise your ALT and AST. For example, just even just exercising before you get checked can do it. Um, Tylenol can do it. Viral hepatitis can do it. Statins can even do it. Um, there's a lot of things that can raise that, none of which have anything to do with what he was talking about. Um, the other thing that's a huge mistake is that he said no one needs cholesterol um, or, or no one needs statins because we need cholesterol. That's what it was. He said, we need, don't we need cholesterol? Like that's a big thing that I hear people say, don't we need cholesterol? So let me explain this to you. Every single cell in your body makes its own cholesterol. You do not need any exogenous or endogenous cholesterol. You don't need LDL. Um, so don't mix that up. Your cells, especially your brain, your brain makes the most uh, cholesterol of all the systems in your body. And there's a blood-brain barrier. None of the circulating cholesterol in your blood actually makes it to your brain. Your brain makes all the cholesterol that it needs. You are not suppressing hormones um, because cholesterol is used. The estrols or sterols, whatever you want to call them, are the building blocks of testosterone, um, stress hormones, all that stuff in your adrenal cortex and testes and ovaries and all of that, estrogen, whatever. All of those organs can make all the cholesterol they want to then make estrogen and testosterone and whatever else uh, they need. They do not need circulating cholesterol. Circulating cholesterol, even if we crush it down to zero, if we bring your LDL cholesterol down to pretty much zero and get your all your numbers down to like very, very minimal, not zero, but you know what I mean, like below 20, nothing bad happens. You still have very high testosterone. You still have estrogen. You still have everything. Your body cells can make it. Um, and your cells need it for life. No one is saying you don't need it. Every single cell needs cholesterol or it won't function. It'll be very stiff and rigid and cannot actually function as a cell. So every single cell, regardless, does need cholesterol. Absolutely correct. But you don't need excess circulating cholesterol. It is the gradient of excess cholesterol pounding into the arterial wall that is causing this problem. You have 2,600 LDL particles and they're blasting your arterial wall. That is what causes the damage. That's what causes the cholesterol to go into the macrophages, which take it up and become eventually foam cells and then become plaque. Um, and, and cholesterol crystallizes inside those uh, foam cells and plaques, and that's the problem. So didn't mean to get this deep into it, but I feel like you guys are benefiting from it. So um, that's the problem. Yes, you do need cholesterol. Your cells can make it. You do not need exogenous cholesterol, especially not in the form of food. You can eat it. It's not going to make a huge difference, but you don't need your liver making exogenous whopping amounts of cholesterol, and we have ways of preventing that now. Um, and then the other thing that they were really into is this whole seed oil controversy. I posted multiple videos on seed oils. Seed oils are not a problem, people. Sure, they're highly processed. Then just, just use olive oil if you want. But seed oils have been shown in studies. There's a study published in Circulation that showed that seed oils, 31.9 years of follow-up, actually reduced cardiovascular mortality, especially when you were taking when you were taken off of saturated fats and switched to vegetable oils that were unsaturated, polyunsaturated, whatever, that's when cardiovascular mortality went down the most. I don't remember the exact number, but I posted about it in my seed oil um, YouTube video. You're welcome to go and uh, watch it. So that was what actually happened in our community. And I'll put a link down. You want to join the community, get like really personalized, deep information, uh, go there. But here's what I think really happened. And I don't know if this is true or not. So Mark, and this is not his real name, but Mark, if this is not true, please forgive me. But I did ask him if I could share this, and he said, okay. So here's what I think happened. His wife wasn't healthy. 
right? And I don't know, this could be completely untrue. His wife wasn't as healthy as she is now. She went to a doctor's visit and she had high, high, high blood sugars, was told she was pre-diabetic, which she still is, but maybe more so. Maybe her numbers were more in the pre-diabetic range that a doctor would recognize. Um, was pre-diabetic and maybe a little bit overweight and was told, listen, you're heading towards diabetes. You need to make some serious changes. She goes on Google, Googles a few things and finds out, hey, there's this thing called keto diet or carnivore diet. <clears throat> keto diet or carnivore diet, eliminate a bunch of seed oils and eat a bunch of fat. And now we only cook in butter, beef, tallow, coconut oil, ghee, all these huge saturated fats, which is why their cholesterol and LDL is so high. I mean, that's exactly the, 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 the numbers that I see in somebody with um, a keto style carnivore diet. And she lost some weight, lost 10, 15 pounds maybe, I don't know. But the weight loss alone usually is enough to uh, get you out of pre-diabetes or improve your cholesterol numbers. But the problem is cholesterol numbers didn't improve. They actually worsened um, because uh, they're actually eating ghee and lard and margarine and beef tallow and butter and coconut oil and all these non-seed oils. These are all saturated fats. And saturated fats, like I said, is a direct line to atherosclerosis, cardiovascular mortality, death rates, whatever. If you keep your saturated fat below 8%, there's no cardiovascular mortality, 10% and above, there's tons of it. So that's what I think really happened. Um, there are much, much better ways to do this, and we've been discussing it in the community. There are much, much better ways to get healthier, lose weight, get rid of your prediabetes without having to go on these extreme, uh, very atherogenic uh, diets that no cardiologist or lipidologist or anyone would eventually agree with. And you see what happened with the numbers. You know, this person probably had slightly worse diabetes numbers that got better because of some weight loss but they had probably a much better lipid panel that got horrific that got horrifically worse because of increased saturated fat intake and maybe even increased uh, absorption of cholesterol because some people are hyper absorbers of uh, cholesterol uh, but anyways that kind of concludes the story um, if you want if you want to if you want to know more click on my links join my community we can talk more one-on-one -on -one and uh, hopefully we can give you a similar analysis of your lipid profile.